Welcome to the 624. This week, we're talking about how NASA has reproduced the origin of life. We'll ask the question, can science tell us anything about origins? And finally, Noah the Musical in theaters April 9th, 11th, and 13th. Let's get started. Welcome to the 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries. Taking a stand on God's word and trusting it from the very first verse. Join us as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. NASA study reproduces origins of life on ocean floor. You're here in the segment I call Evolution in the News, and this is an, a segment that I just like to use to tell people you don't have to be scared of science. You don't have to be worried about evolution. Most of these articles with their flashy headlines and all the, the storytelling and the spin doctoring really are just a dog with a big bark but no bite. This article is nothing more. It actually was published on NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory website on February, excuse me, February 25th, 2019. Again, the article title, NASA Study Reproduces Origins of Life on Ocean Floor. This sounds amazing, like we have reproduced the origin of life. We know how it happened and we've done it. We actually know exactly what's going on and nothing can be further from the truth. Now this goes back to the old Yuri Miller experiment. I'm not going to get too sciencey on you here, but most of us learned about that in school. They actually tried to recreate early Earth's atmosphere. Okay, So they put together all the elements, shot electricity through it. They wound up making some amino acids. Uh, first of all, they made a mixture of amino acids, not all left-handed, which means the chirality is wrong. It doesn't create life. Uh, the other one is you created amino acids, okay? You didn't create life. You didn't create proteins. You didn't even get polypeptides. So long ways away from life. So very, very unsatisfying study, really, when you think about it and when you really do the, the work. But this is actually recreating the early Earth ocean. So one of the, the problems with the early atmosphere is that we found through uh, studying fossils and everything, uh, through rust and all the stuff, that early in Earth's history, there was a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. And so one of the other theories that's been around for a while, but they've just been, they're just getting around to actually doing some, some studies on it. Now, they've been studying it for nine years, but this is the first time it's actually come out. They've actually got something to tell people about, uh, was that, well, what if it started in the oceans and there's these thermal hydrothermal vents? And in these thermal vents, the water is heated and it shot up from out from under the Earth's crust. And so all around these thermal vents, there's uh, different different mixtures of, uh, of you know, uh, minerals and there's supposedly green iron that they find in other areas with low oxygen. Uh, all these different things. So what, what they did was they didn't go down to the ocean floor and figure this out. They, they decided what they thought the early ocean mixture would have been, and they put them in test tubes. They started pouring stuff into beakers and then heated the beakers to 158 degrees. And voila, they created an amino acid, just one amino acid, not, not several like Yuri Miller. They created one amino acid and then a byproduct of that amino acid. Let me see if I can find it real quick here. Uh, let's see here. So they combined water, minerals, and the precursor molecules, uh, pyruvate and ammonia, 
which are needed to start the formation of amino acids. And then what they actually created was the amino acid alanine and the alpha-hydroxy acid lactate. Now, the, the acid is actually a byproduct of the amino acid, of creating the amino acid. So that's not quite as, as exciting as the actual amino acid itself. But again, they only created one. Now, there's multiple questions about this. Does this really prove that life came from nothing, that we could have gotten life on Earth? Absolutely not. It has not proven a thing. Uh, we don't know whether this is a right-handed or left-handed amino acid because all of life has left-handed amino acids. There's 20 amino acids. All of them, except for one, has to be a left-handed amino acid. We don't know what this one is. So far, far from proving actual life, uh, the other thing is you've created one amino acid, okay? You're still far from proving life because all those amino acids, all those 20 amino acids have to come together and form polypeptide chains. Again, I'm not going to get sciencey on you, but the amino acids have to form together, create polypeptide chains. Those polypeptide chains form proteins. Now, that's very simplistic, but that's the basics, okay? Here's the problem. All those amino acids have to suddenly somehow be created. And then when they form the polypeptide chains, they have to be in an exact order. They must form exactly correct. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So even if you get all the amino acids, you've still got to form the polypeptide chains just perfectly. Number two, the water breaks down all these bonds. So that's a real problem. Number three, there are enzymes that actually keep the amino acids from connecting to one another in the, wrong in the wrong way or in the wrong order. Where did the enzymes come from? How do they know what correct order it should be in? Okay, These are all real problems that we need to answer before we talk about anything coming close to proving the origin of life. Because even if you get the polypeptide change, you've still got to get them to form proteins. And then from there, you've still got to have all these left-handed proteins form into an actual life. So again, we are far away from any kind of answer. They really have not come to the table with anything new. It's just that they did it in hydrothermal vents rather than the atmosphere. So again, this is another example that you don't have to be scared of science. You don't have to worry about evolution. You can trust on the Word of God from the very first verse. Be standing on the authority of Scripture every time, and science eventually catches up, catches up with the Bible. Uh, we've seen it happen over and over again. Science catching up with the Bible, and it will continue to happen until the Lord comes back. That's all I have for this segment. Let's get into the main segment, because talking about what this science actually proves brings up a good point. What can, act, what can science actually tell us about origins? That's what we're going to talk about next on the main segment. Thank you for hanging out with us here on the 624. We're in the main segment where we're looking at what can science actually tell us about evolution? Uh, we need to be very careful when we say science proves this or uh, science proves that. One of the things you may have heard is someone will say evolution is a scientific fact. Or they'll say, hey, uh, evolutionists, we have science on our side. You creationists, you have stories and myths on your side. And when it comes to origins, the origin of the universe, origin of life, 
That is a bald-faced lie. Now, I'm not saying anyone's purposely lying to you. Uh, they may not realize it, but that's actually a lie. Here's why, why I say that. When we normally think of science, we normally think of operational science, good operational science. This is the kind of science that runs experiments, that tests things, that gets me my MacBook Pro, it gets me the microphone I'm using, it gets me the car we drive, uh, the medicine we need when we're sick. It gets us the Cassini space probe that has orbited Saturn for years and uh, went out to Enceladus and Titan and sent back pictures and data and all this kind of stuff. So this is good operational science, and this is noted by two things. It is observable. In other words, we can see it happening, uh, and it is repeatable. I can run the same experiment over and over again. I get the same results, and based off these results, I can change the experiment and kind of figure things out, make sure I get what I need to get. So this is good operational science. Unfortunately, when it comes to origins, like the origin of the universe and origin of life, we're not talking about operational science. We're talking about something that is one-off in the past that we did not observe. Uh, I'm assuming you weren't there. And then something that we cannot repeat. It is not reproducible. Uh, no one that I know of has figured out how to create a Big Bang and get new galaxies and planets. And no one that I know of uh, has figured out how to get life from nothing. Uh, despite the headlines that we see today, uh, no one has figured this out yet. And so this is not operational science because it's not observable and it's not repeatable. So what is it? Well, it's what we would call, there's a couple of different names for it. Some people call it historical science. Some people call it uh, forensics science. You may have watched one of those CSI shows. I think there's like 40 of them out there now. Uh, but on the CSI show, something happens, a murder happens. No one was there to see it. And so they actually have to go around and gather clues and evidence to try and figure out what happened. Well, that's exactly what's happening with Origins. Because we were not there to observe it, because we cannot reproduce it, uh, we have to gather clues and evidence to figure out what actually happened. And what we really need to do, because we're all looking at the same facts, this is something to note, we're all looking at the same facts. Really what we have to do is look at those facts or the observable evidence and then figure out what it lines up better with, creation or evolution. And that's how we have to make our decisions. So we need to be very careful about what we say science has proven or what is a scientific fact. Because when it comes to origins, you cannot say that. And this is why you'll see so many fuzzy words. Now, other people call them different things, squishy words, whatever you want to call them. But they are words that let you know, they key you into the fact that the scientist writing this article really doesn't know. Uh, it'll say things like, uh, we surmise, or scientists predict, or uh, it must have been, or we calculate that it possibly is. These types of things, they, these are these fuzzy words that sound good in an in a evolutionary literature, but what it really tells you is that they actually don't know. And not saying there's anything wrong with that. There's lots of things we don't know, but they need to be honest about it and upfront instead of saying, ah, evolution is a scientific fact, and then giving you all these fuzzy words. They need to just be upfront and say, hey, there's lots of things we haven't figured out. We don't have the answers for this. 
So be careful when you're reading evolutionary literature, looking, you have to look for those fuzzy words. And that's what I look for when I read those articles that I kind of report on when we talk about in the first segment, is I look for those fuzzy words. I look for what they've actually found and what it actually proves rather than just what they're kind of saying, hey, we've done it, we've done this. What actually happened? What did they actually prove? How does it actually affect evolution and creation? And so I think you'll find, again, 99% of those articles are just a dog with a big bark and no bite. Now, this should affect how you talk to people because ultimately this podcast should give you confidence to trust God's word from the very first verse, and it should give you enough confidence to share this with other people. Now, inevitably, if you hit an evolutionist, I mean, you don't hit an evolutionist, but when you're talking to people and you come upon an evolutionist, um, you're going to run into a couple of things. The one that I ran into recently is, and I've heard it before, uh, you say, hey, you're an evolutionist, I'm a creationist, say, hey, how did you get all the information for the human genome? There's a lot of information there. Where did it come from? And they say, oh, well, that's origin of life. We, you know, evolution has nothing to do with origin of life. And so it's a neat little compartmentalization to be able to keep from having to talk about things that they don't know the answer to. It's pretty nifty. But even if you continue on and say, okay, I'll give you first life. Now, what is your definition of evolution? And this is something key. You want to have people define their, their meaning of evolution. Because if they say evolution is just change, you're going to have a hard conversation because they haven't defined anything. So any kind of change is evolution. And they're just going to claim any change is evolution. See, evolution is proven because, you know, Darwin's finches' beaks changed. Stickleback fish changed. E. coli, uh, you know, uh, have a new, new method of, of gaining energy. Uh, it's changed, you know, any kind of change. Now, that's going to be a hard one, and you're still going to have to try and narrow down what they actually believe and what they don't believe. If they say, though, that it is common ancestor, in other words, we all evolved from a single-cell organism into the diversity we see today, now we have something that we can chew on. Now we have something we can talk about. Uh, and it's a good thing because there's absolutely no evidence for this kind of common ancestor. You may say, oh, well, it looks like the, you know, um, common design, what we would say common design, uh, they would say is, you know, is evidence of evolution. But here's where the kicker is. No matter what you, no matter what you say, if you're defining evolution as common ancestor, you somehow must get all the information for body parts, organs inside the body, uh, endocrine system, the, the sweat glands, all these kinds of systems and organs and body parts, you have to have a library full of information in order to get them to actually build them through the DNA. So to go from a single cell organism to a human, you have to get a lot of information. And here's the problem. And evolutionists will tell you the way we get the way we get the diversity is through mutations in the DNA and then natural selection acting upon those mutations. Mutations never give new information. They don't give new unique information that lead to a gain of function. 
Now, there are some mutations that look like it's a gain of function. There's a different function that we get, but it's not because of new information. Every time we've studied mutations at a point level, at the genetic level, uh, we know what gene changed, we know how, what happened, and what effect it had. Every single time that we've studied it, it is a loss of information or a degradation of that information. It is never new information. And so evolutionists have a real problem when it comes to evolution, even if we give them first life. And that's something we'll talk about later on in another podcast. But I want to make sure you understand that you don't have to be scared of this whole science thing, of this whole evolution thing. When we talk about scientific fact of evolution, that's really just a saying that they throw out there. They cannot prove evolution at all. Well, that's about all the time I have for the main segment here on the 624. Uh, for right now, let's get into our third and final segment. All right, we're wrapping it up here on the 624. In the third segment, we're talking about current events. And I want to talk about Noah the Musical. I know I just lost half of you. I get it. Uh, now, I was a theater major, so I like this kind of stuff. But here's what I'm talking about. Noah the Musical was put on by the Sights and Sounds stage there in Branson, Missouri for a while. It came out with rave reviews. Everybody loved it. But here's why I'm talking about it. Fathom Events is actually bringing, bringing it to theaters April 9th, 11th, and 13th. Now, you can go to their website, fathomevents.com, get more information on this, and buy tickets. The reason I want you to support it is two reasons. Number one, because Noah and the global flood is a historical account in the Bible that is key to understanding the observable world around us. That's why this year, my conference here in Austin, uh, the Central Texas Creation Conference, uh, is probably going to happen September 28th. We're still working on that. But the title is The Tower and the Flood, because the flood is key to understanding everything we see around us, and the Tower of Babel is key to understanding humankind. These two historical events given to us in the Bible are actually very important to understanding our world today. And so I want you to go, go support anything that has to do with that. Second reason I want you to support this is because Fathom Events is doing more Christian films. And as they continue to do more Christian films, the influence gets wider and wider, and more people are going to come to them, and more people are going to get the message of the gospel and of creation. And so this is something that we want to support. So go out there at fathomevents.com. Get your tickets, get more information, April 9th, 11th, and 13th. Have a little fun with the family. This is faith-friendly, family-friendly, and you can just enjoy yourself for the night while supporting a good thing. Well, guys, that's about all the time I have here on the 624. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope you'll join us next time. Uh, go ahead and comment. Let me know what you like, what you didn't like. Be sure you subscribe so you'll be notified when we drop the next podcast. But until then, I pray that God would bless you with knowledge to know him and courage to share him. Thank you for listening to The 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries. Join us again next time as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. To learn more, visit our website at www.centraltexascreation.com.